Welcome to Truett Talks. My name is Andy Stubblefield, and I will be your host today. Truett Talks is a place where we engage with Truett faculty and other distinguished guests to share their work with you. We'll also talk about whatever you want us to talk about. If you have any comments or suggestions on future ideas for podcasts, please find us on Facebook and Twitter at Truett underscore Talks. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to the podcast. I'd also like to welcome our very first guest, Dr. David Wilhite. Dr. Wilhite is Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Truett Seminary. Along with numerous articles and a current edited series on Paul and the Church Fathers, he has authored three books, Tertullian the African, The Doctrine of the Church, and most recently, the Gospel According to Heretics. Welcome, Dr. Wilhite. Thank you, and good to be here. So we are here today to talk about your most recent publication, The Gospel According to Heretics. Just to start off, could you tell us about how this project got started? Yeah, sure. So um, probably as backdrop to this, you should know that when you study heresy today, um, scholars who are studying this are doing what's often called revisionist history, uh, in that you don't assume that these heretics are necessarily evil, wicked people. Um, maybe they had some good reasons for saying what they did, teaching what they did. And so trying to understand the heretics from their own perspective is sort of the mainstream scholarship. So when I teach this as a class, uh, in any, any class where heresies come up, it yeah, I guess I tend to just do that sort of naturally and say, now we're going to stop and take a moment and see it from their perspective and then get back to the orthodox, traditional Christian view that we've all been taught. Uh, one of my former students, Chris Cool, uh, came up to me afterward and said, hey, this was great. This helped me understand my own faith and especially understanding Christology. Yeah. Um, and he said, every Christian should learn this. And he happened to go to church with me here at Waco at University Baptist. And he said, asked me if I would teach it as a Sunday school class. So I uh, thought about it and, you know, really tried to push it off. But I just wasn't sure teaching heresy as Sunday school was a good idea. <laughs> um, but he, he had some good ways, to th he, good suggestions for it. And so I finally said, okay, I'll agree to it. If you, Chris, will teach the right answer, I will come each Sunday and present a heresy and present why they thought, you know, said what they said, and then you turn us to the scriptures and see what would be the response to this. Uh, we also recruited uh, Hannah Starkey. She's now Hannah Smith. She's in med school in Houston, um, and she facilitated the discussion, and things are going great. Uh, so we're in, like, somewhere around week five or six of the semester having Sunday school. Lots of people are attending. Good discussion. And uh, late one Friday afternoon, I'm here at work in my office, finishing up my Sunday school lesson before the weekend, and in walks um, an editor from Baker Press. His name is James Ernest. He had been meeting with like David Garland, some of the other big names around here, and he said he wanted to meet me, so I was still in the office. Uh, what am I working on? And I said, oh, I'm working on the Gospel According to Heretics. And he <laughs> said, oh, that'd be a great book. And so here we are. Huh. That's fascinating. So the Gospel According to Heretics, um, it's a title that is just kind of jam-packed with meaning and uh so can we just kind of break that down for a minute um so let's start with the gospel according to part mm -hmm. um so i think we can all like you kind of recognize in that that you know there's some reference back to you know there's the gospel according to mark the gospel according to matthew 
So we have like these four gospels and you know, some might even recall that there are other gospels out there too. Mm-hmm. Um, so have you discovered the gospel like according to all the heretics? Did they get together and write one gospel? What are you what are you talking about here? Right, right. No, I've not discovered any new gospels. Um as you say, there are a lot of uh, apocryphal gospels, yeah. um, and some, many of them are making it into the book. Um, yeah, so the idea of gospel according to, first off, it is trying to take seriously. I mean, one of the things we had to take serious in, in this book is that the gospel is always according to someone. Yeah. Um, there was a so-called heretic named Tatian who didn't like the fact that we have four different gospels. You know, I mean, why couldn't yeah. you get it right the first time? So he created a work known as the Diatessaron. Um, tried to kind of piece them all together, harmonize the Gospels. And from best we can tell in our sources, church Christians in Syria were using Tatian's, you know, compiled gospel, super gospel uh, for some time and yeah. just thought maybe this is okay. Um, so getting behind the idea, I think we all assume that when we read the four Gospels, we're getting behind those presentations to the real Gospel or at least the Gospels coming through those texts. So I'm definitely interested in the gospel as a practitioner, as a Christian yeah. believer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when I, I think maybe the best way to get to, the, to understand why this title was chosen, even though there's lots of books that are now cliche, the gospel according to uh, Starbucks and the Simpsons <laughs> and all of these things, um, really it just struck me that when we're trying to understand the her- heresies, and I was specifically trying to talk about the Christological heresies, what, okay. what were the heresies about Jesus? Why did they say what they say? They really were driven by their view of the gospel. Hmm. And so really when, you, when I think of gospel, the, what the essence of this is we're talking about, think of Christology meets soteriology. Okay. So who is Jesus and soteriology, doctrine of salvation, what does Jesus do? Hmm. And that's why we're really talking about many different gospels, uh, or at least a gospel according to many different people. Yeah. Uh, each of them had their own view of who Jesus was and what Jesus did. So, to kind of get even further into that, um, so I guess you're, so you're talking about all the different people. So they're all asking these very similar questions you know, about Christology, soteriology. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems, I mean, that now we've kind of you know, figured out, you know, there are those who are right and those who are wrong. Or as you kind of talk about in the beginning of the book, they're the winners and the losers. Yep, sure. Um, so how, you know, why, why is it that we even need to know what the loser said? Mm, right. Well, great question. So, I mean, yeah, I do talk about how um, it's now, again, cliche to say history has been written by the winners. Yeah. But in a sense, it's true. And so we have, to, we have to figure out how to deal with this. And the heretics were definitely the losers. Okay. Um, and so why would we listen to them? Um, I mean... Augustine has a famous saying in his Confessions where he talks about how, um, you know, you really can only, I'm, gonna, I'm paraphrasing here, but um, you really only understand your own faith by understanding the heretics' misstatement of it. It's quoted in the book uh, more precisely. But I think that we assume that this idea of the gospel, as I defined it, who Jesus is and what Jesus does, uh, that this just kind of fell from heaven or at least Jesus kind of just was very clear to his disciples, and all the disciples kind of had the exact same idea of who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And so we've all just kind of had this core belief, the gospel, ever since. But when you look back in the sources, it's just not that simple. I mean, even (laughs) Matthew, Mark, Luke, John slightly depict Jesus 
differently and mm-hmm. slightly focus on different, you know, I mean, some not so slightly, focus on different things that Jesus does. So by understanding what the earliest Christians thought about Jesus, about the gospel, even those we now call heretics, I mean, I think it at least gives us a richer picture. And so those kind of standard doctrines that we have about Jesus is fully God, fully human, things like that, those are really reactions to heresy. Hmm. And so by understanding those heretics, we better understand traditional Christian orthodoxy. Hmm. So you talk about um, one of the kind of aspects or um, kind of avenues into this study um, is you use a hermeneutic of suspicion. Um, I was wondering if you could expound on that and maybe how, you know, you're studying, going to be studying these heretics, but alongside them, you have to study those who are kind of orthodox, I guess, or understand. Because sometimes all we have is what the orthodox That's right. said That's about right. the, the heretics. And so how does a hermeneutic of suspicion, if you could talk about what that is, and mm. then how does it play into your study? Yeah, I definitely, um, yeah, again, I explained this in the introductory chapter. I, I admit I'm jumping hit, uh, right in head first with hermeneutic of suspicion. I think, uh, first, if there's any worry about the hermeneutic of suspicion, it's that it's just a blank check to question everything. And this has been done with scriptures, historical critical study of scripture is definitely the hermeneutic of suspicion instead of the hermeneutic of trust. Mm -hmm. And that's sometimes hard to reconcile if you're a practicing Christian, um, but it is done. And so I I think with these sources, we're talking about the post-New Testament writers, and they, as you said, many of the heretics... Uh, we don't get to hear their voices directly. Now, there's a surprising number of we do. We have found their sources, and so we have, that's, that's always helpful. But often we have to listen to what the Orthodox tell us about the heretics. And so when we do that, we just have to take their statements with a grain of salt, sometimes with a lot of salt. Um, <laughs> Because if you're writing against heretics, if you're Irenaeus, Tertullian, on on into much later periods, uh, these early church writers, uh, it was their job to persuade their audience. Yeah. And so they used all the tools at their disposal from the classical schools of rhetoric. Uh, step one is to discredit your opponent. And so, you know, um, when a mid-third to fourth century source tells us that Marcion raped a virgin in his church and his own father excommunicated him, and that's when he left and came to Rome and started teaching that. But when no earlier source, sources that are much closer to Marcion, and sources that would love to say this about Marcion, when they don't tell us that Marcion raped a virgin and was kicked out by his own father, we probably ought to dismiss that as later uh, slander. So it's that kind of method that we just have to use. But again, I try to be cautious in here and not be hyper-skeptical and use uh, suspicion just for the sake of suspicion. Because what I think the danger is, is we kind of fall into that old trap where, um, you know, the quest for the historical Jesus um, was heavily criticized by Albert Schweitzer, and he didn't say this, but his he basically said, he's been paraphrased as saying, that those scholars were looking down the long well of history to only find their own reflections staring back up at mm-hmm. them. So in that view, that Jesus looks a lot like them. Well, that's no surprise. I think we are in the same danger with the heretics because when we look back at um, the, the, these Christian teachers, it's just too easy to say, oh, well, no one would really think that. Hmm. So, I'm, so I suspect when um, Irenaeus tells us how the Gnostics, so-called Gnostics, believe that 
uh, one eon descended off another eon. These are all little droplets of God. And then finally, the farthest eon falls so far that she realizes it, uh, and she's distraught. And this means she bears grief, which falls even further, which bears tears. And then when the tears uh, dry up, it turns into eye crust. And this is the stuff of the world, right? No one would really believe that. <laughs> That's, but when we say that, what we mean is no one in our right mind. And what we mean yeah. is I, a modern, enlightened individual, wouldn't believe that. Mm-hmm. From our best sources, and some Gnostic texts still survive, the Nagavati Codex have been found, uh, they probably believe that yeah. or something like that. I'm oversimplifying it. But, yeah. So, yeah, we have to do the hermeneutic of suspicion, but we have to use caution. Just to be clear for our listeners, in this next segment, we talk about the final chapter of Dr. Wilhite's book in which he discusses the topic of Islam as a Christological heresy. To understand Islam in this way, you need to follow his discussion of the development of Christological heresies through the previous chapters. So, uh, if someone were to kind of scan through you know, the chapters in your book, uh, even with kind of the most you know, basic knowledge of heresies, but then you kind of, you get to this, Final chapter. Mm, uh, yep, the final chapter. A chapter on Islam. Yeah. This could be really kind of a provocative, maybe an alienating idea. I mean, yeah, a concept, yeah. you know, if, if not approached in the right way. Could you, before we kind of get into that chapter, could you give us like the backstory on your thoughts going into that? Um, was it originally in the plan for the book? Yeah, good question. So when I mapped out the, the heretics I was going to talk about, it was really hard to limit it um, because there's so many heresies. And as I said, what, what helped was I was focusing on Christological heresy. But even then, Augustine accuses Pelagius of uh, not just soteriology, but his view of Christ. He makes Christ unnecessary. So that's a Christological heresy for Augustine. So I was tempted to put a lot more in here. Yeah. Um, and I just realized I had to cut down. So I got it down to about nine. Yeah. And I planned on going through the, the seven ecumenical councils. And I knew that the, the Council of Nicaea II that met in 787, that was the last, you know, what's generally called the, second, the ecumenical council. That seventh ecumenical council was dealing with iconoclasm. So in there, if you destroy icons, you're a heretic, uh, a Christological heresy, because you're denying that Christ is incarnate and visible and tangible and all of these things. So portrayable, all of that. Um, and that's where I thought I was going to stop. And even that was a stretch for me. My area of expertise is really second, third century. So uh, that was stretching me, but I just felt it all needed to be put in one place. Um, and then when I started reading the sources on iconoclasm, these are the same sources that are also talking about another Christological heresy. And that's the way they're talking about it. John of Damascus is talking about the Ishmaelites, that he calls them, hmm. which we call the Muslims, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And I probably should have known this. This is probably just a, a major gap in my my training, my expertise. But I had no idea that the early Christians like John of Damascus thought of Muslims as Christians. Wow. They were Christians. They're just a heretical form of Christianity. And so, honestly, when I saw this, I just thought, well, that's interesting trivia. Um, and I found more and more of these sources and... Uh, just out of curiosity, started trying to figure out just how serious is this, and yeah. quickly realized this is one of this is listed as one of the last Christological heresies in all these early, uh, you know, medieval, early medieval 
uh, anti-heretical writers. So I went back to my editor and said, I think I need to put a chapter on Islam. Uh, am I crazy? And we got a lot of help and advice on that chapter because it is a very um, delicate matter. I, uh, I think what, what I would say just as a start off for that, um, or at least what I want to be clear about with that chapter, if uh, someone's interested in what I have to say about the chapter, great. I would plead that you read the earlier chapters first. Yeah, yeah. Don't just rush to that chapter and hear me call <laughs> hear uh, Muslims as heretics, because first off, I don't call Muslims heretics. Um, I'm reporting what happened in history. Yeah. Um, and also, I, I think there's some precedent before Islam that's very that you kind of helpfully sets up what you're dealing with in that chapter. Hmm. Um, when you get to Nestorius and the Nestorians, yeah. as their opponents called them. Um, this is a time, this is in the 5th century where Nestorius didn't think he was a heretic. I mean, no one heretic did. Um, Historius is exiled. He's not given a fair trial, a fair hearing. Who knows what would have happened if we had had a more, um, uh, uh, a better chance to hear Nestorius. Many Nestorians thought Nestorius was right. They don't call themselves Nestorians. They just call themselves Christians. And they survived throughout the centuries and still survive today. I mean, there are still uh, what are called Assyrian churches or churches yeah. of the East. Um, and these Christians look to Nestorius, not as a heretic. To call him a heretic is inter- terribly insulting. And so I have to acknowledge this in a chapter on Nestorius. Um, I want to respect Christians of the East, but I also have to deal with the history of why he came to be seen as a heretic and why the other party, the Orthodox party, uh, the Chalcedonian party, viewed him the way they did. So I end up with the same sort of problem with the Monophysites and still in places like Egypt. And then I realize I'm dealing with the same kind of, similar kind of problem with Islam. Now, here's the difference is Monophysite Christians, Nestorius Christians, Jacobite Syrian Christians, they don't want to call themselves heretics. They just want to call themselves Christians. Now, with uh, Muslims, they don't, I assume, they don't want to be called heretics, nor do they want to call themselves Christians. Yeah. So it was the same problem I had in earlier chapters exponentially more difficult. Anyway, that's how I kind of came to that issue. Yeah. Yeah, but I didn't expect to. Getting into this chapter, what must we know about the beginnings of Islam to understand why it was considered a Christological heresy? Yeah, okay, what what must we know? So let me start by saying, as a Christian who I thought I had you know, above average knowledge of Islam. Um, I've taught religion, world religions once. And um, so as someone who thought he had a decent understanding of Islam, I would say first, all of us as Christians need to know more about Islam. Just that's the climate of the world we live in because there's so many misconceptions and stereotyping and problems with it. So what should we know about Islam? Well, first off, let's all agree that we, we, we need to learn more. Yeah. Uh, but to get into this question, um, yeah, let me go back to John of Damascus okay. and where he starts. So John of Damascus, he uh, has encountered um, many Muslims. He's living in a Muslim state. He is the uh, secretary for the government in Damascus, the Muslim gov- government, Arabic government. Um, he knows Islam. He knows Muslims of that time. And he does, he is seeing how much they have to say about Jesus, how much they honor and revere Jesus as the greatest of the prophets until Muhammad. And Muhammad's the last of the prophets. Um, so I think by just realizing how much um, 
Jesus is in the Quran, how much Muslims have to say about Jesus, um, starting there, and then probably starting by asking what was it that Muhammad was doing. Yeah. Just like we've been, my whole book has been about what did early Christians say about Jesus and what did he, who was he, what did he do? Yeah. Um, I mean, that work is being done with Muhammad, so it, that's not to discount the traditional telling of Muhammad, but there is a lot of historical study being done there. Um, so the Quran was probably written immediately after, uh, was probably put together after Muhammad's day. He doesn't okay. write it. He, he re- allegedly receives this revelation from God. And, um, yeah, by getting a bit of a better understanding, I think Muhammad is, uh, his primary message is one of monotheism. Yeah. And this is one Christians agree with. And that's probably why so many Christians early on actually feel a kindred spirit. Here's a monotheistic religion coming out of Arabia that is adamantly against idolatry and yet reveres Jesus. Yeah. Now, Jesus isn't God, so it's a low Christology. It's not an orthodox Christology to traditional Christianity. But there's a lot more there um, than we previously thought, at least I previously knew about. So if, if Muslims, it seems, I think, just to kind of clarify what you're saying, so it seems like... Um, kind of just make that distinction of you know what what it is that um, if Muslims aren't question Muslims aren't rejecting Christianity as a religion then what is it that they seem to be rejecting oh right sure so the, I mean part of our word is the problem is this word religion right yeah. so the, yeah. the religio in the ancient world is not the same thing as what we think of today um, so remember Christianity is still a very diverse thing at this time even though the empire has really become a uniting, well, a somewhat of a uniting mechanism, um, at least it has the power to enforce a central orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And those Christianities that fall outside of the Roman Byzantine Empire aren't enforced by this. And what happens is there's a lot of diversity. And so if you think of Christianity as just one thing, well, then, of course, Islam is another thing, mm-hmm. another religion. But if you think of Christianity as a very, very diverse Sure, there's common core. I'm all for that. But even there, a lot of the common core was questioned by a lot of these heretical groups we're talking about. So if you see it as a spectrum of Christian groups, some of which have very low Christologies, like the Ebionites from the 2nd century, um, if, if the spectrum of Christianity includes these kinds of diverse groups with different Christologies, different Gospels, then Christianity could easily overlap with Islam in the 7th and 8th century when Christians are coming into contact with it. Um, and that's how you can easily see how Christians see that as overlap. And again, that's not something that just is the first initial misunderstanding. Um, yeah, I mean, Christians initially thought, okay, Muslims are Christians, just a heretical form. And that goes on for uh, in surprising places for a long time. I mean, um, Raymond Lowell... Um, it's still saying this in the late Middle Ages. Erasmus will say um, Muslims are half Christians. In fact, some of them are better Christians than yeah. some of us. Yeah. So, yeah, when, you're, when you talk about uh, religion, it's obviously two different things. But when you talk about the worship of the one true God, hmm. well, now we all agree there's only one God. So is Judaism worship, are Jews worshiping the one true God? They claim, you know, historically, we've, Christians have said we're worshiping the same God. Yeah. Are Muslims. Now, they're not worshiping Jesus, mm-hmm. but if they're worshiping one true God, rejecting idolatry, and revering Jesus, you see how easy it is to 
think differently instead of thinking of two different religions now thinking of overlap yeah 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 i think what made that stand out most to me in that chapter is this pretty fascinating dialogue that you yeah. have yeah. Um, between this arabic officer and a christian farmer yeah um where totally just, fabricated. I made that up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's yeah. not a gospel I discovered. Right. <laughs> uh, no, but I just think you do it so well, and that you provide this kind of uh, you know, situation or context, and with when in which these two can have this conversation, and you know, for most people who would not have been just completely educated on, on all of the doctrines of Christianity, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, these things these things don't seem that far apart, um, and so. Right. It was he was the Christian was able to say, yeah, I can submit to these things, mm-hmm. you know. And so I, th- I think you guys need to go read that. It's pretty fascinating. And the word Muslim means one who submits. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. will you submit to this new rule that has come? Right. Um, Christians certainly would have responded differently at different times depending on where they were. But yeah, if you're an if you're an illiterate Christian from the countryside who's not able to even go into the basilica every week or find the bishop every week um, and suddenly this new religion comes in and seems to be saying a lot of similar things uh, you, you, if you can read it all you probably can't read the scriptures in Latin in the case I gave uh, yeah. in that book yeah. yeah. how would you check these things out if you're being asked to submit to what Muhammad teaches and you start to ask what does Muhammad teach yeah, you can see how easy hmm. these two things start to overlap and that's not to, that's not, I don't try to, dis, uh, just let me say this, I don't yeah. try to sweep the differences under the rug. Yeah. Right. Jesus, yeah. Christians believe Jesus is fully God. That would be blasphemy in yeah. Islam. So, yes, there are major, major differences. But historically, these two religions didn't just bump into each other like billiard balls. They, um, these were two movements that yeah. overlapped. You have a, a quote, if I can read it here, okay. um, from Miroslav Volf uh, in, this last, in this chapter. Mm-hmm. It says... What the Quran denies about God as the Holy Trinity has been denied by every great teacher of the church in the past and ought to be denied by every Orthodox Christian today. I reject the idea that Muslim monotheism is incompatible with the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't give it a lot of context, I'm sorry. Sure. So if, if, could you give it some context to that and... Mm-hmm. You know, Let's see. Well, so context. First, that's from Wolf's book called Allah. Yeah. Uh, I recommend it. I think it's a helpful conversation starter because instead of assuming Allah is a different God, I mean, one of the first things you learn when you're going through these sources that I'm going through is that Allah is actually not even an Arabic word. Hmm. I mean, it's probably a, a, a word uh, from the same family as the Hebrew word for God, El. Mm-hmm. Right? So this probably is coming from not Arabic, but from Aramaic and Syriac. Um, when Muhammad wants to worship one true God as opposed to polytheism and idolatry, he comes to this word, uh, this, this God, Allah, the one God. And, uh, yeah, Wolf tries to start there by saying kind of what I mentioned earlier. I was definitely echoing yeah. his ideas that, yeah. well, if, if, if Jews and Christians believe there's one true God and we believe we're worshiping the same God, we just disagree about Jesus' relationship here. Yep. Why wouldn't we say the same thing about Islam? Um, yeah, I mean, so here's another con. You asked about context. Let me just yeah. jump completely to another world here. Um, I don't want to get. I don't want to betray this person's identity, but a very close friend of my family, um, someone very close to me. I was in uh, visiting with them at their house. Went to the teenage son's room, 
And you got to understand, I'm from the Deep South, so it's no surprise to me that he has guns all over his wall and targets and all of this, but he has a target of somebody who's clearly um, supposed to be a terrorist. Okay. Face is covered and all of that, all in black, having... And so, um, you know, this teenage kid from the Deep South had shot bullet holes all in the thing, uh, American flag hanging over it, and then written in marker said, take that, Allah. Hmm. And I mean, it just so saddened me when I saw this because I know this kid means well, and this is just patriotism, and um, you know he wants to stand up for what he, what he sees as right. Um, and so I tried to gently tell him, you know, hey, why did you write this on here? And we got to talking, and I walked him through just this basic fact that uh, Allah is actually a Judeo-Christian word, yeah. um, and it just means the one true God. And he immediately ripped that part off the bottom of his poster. He didn't take the whole poster down, but still, I uh, yeah. felt like that's progress. Yeah. Um, so, yes, when the Quran rejects things that are clearly targeting Christians, now even Muslim scholars will tell us that that is not targeting what we all understand and agree is Orthodox Christianity. It is targeting what is was a either a misunderstanding of Christianity or is targeting maybe even heretical forms of Christianity. So, um, I mean, I'll just give a simple example. Uh, you can't call God three, according to the Quran. Well, that's clearly an attack on the Trinity, or at least a rejection of the Trinity. I, and I understand that. Um, if you, that's Muslims, certainly reject the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, but the Quran is very clearly, when you read that passage, rejecting tritheism. Well, Wolf is right to say Christians should reject tritheism. Yeah. If you have a doctrine of the Trinity that makes the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit three different gods. Yeah. You've, you've misunderstood. So that, again, just kind of recalibers the whole question that, uh, that's happening when we yeah. talk about these things. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's great. Um, well, I want to move to a couple kind of practical questions, and I'm, I'm stopping here with the, with the chapter because I don't want to give everything away. We, we've talked about <laughs> a lot of it, um, but uh, we want you to go pick up the book, um, go read... Dr. Wilhite's uh, Gospel According to the Her- to Heretics. Um, it's fantastic um, and accessible. I'll give a little plug even more so for it in a few minutes. But uh, a couple just kind of practical questions for you. Um, so in your preface, you actually thank the many potential heretics mm-hmm. who participated in your, your class or are participating in your class at church. Um, so not really interested in you naming all those potential <laughs> heretics. True. I can name names, yeah. Uh, but more so, you know, what advice would you give to, to anyone who might read your book um, or study this period or these different um, orthodoxies and heresies um, and find, you know, might find a, her- a heresy kind of more compelling mm-hmm. um, than the orthodoxy that they've grown up in or known. Uh, so can Christians participate in the church with, I mean, heretical views? Mm, right. Well, short answer is yes. Um, so Paul tells us First Corinthians 11, 9, yeah. there must be, we translate it, factions among you. I mean, it's the Greek word hierases. There must hmm. be heresies among you. Huh. Among you, like within the church of Corinth, there has to be heresies, heretics. Um, so that's good news for any heretics out there. <laughs> um I think maybe my here, here's what I want to get behind with your question is the question 
um, I think too easily has an assumption of an individualistic assumption. Okay. I like a particular Christology, so I'm now a heretic. I'm now a whatever, a Marcionite or an Arian or an Ebionite. Um, well, so I think that is the more fundamental problem. Hmm. Not just the what you're teaching, not the dogma or something. Um, but, yeah, so I tried to present the heresies in this book as fair a way as possible. I'm sure I'm not perfectly objective, but I tried to at least uh, think, how, would they be happy with this presentation of their own views? But still, at the end of the day, I just uh, I, I don't find them compelling. I don't yeah. think they work. Um, so uh, we mentioned earlier the idea that history has been written by the winners. Yeah. Um, that's often sometimes in in church history that happened because the winner was backed by the emperor and the emperor's army and the inquisition and you could enforce orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that does happen. Sadly, that's part of our history. Other times. It was something close to a free exchange of ideas. Hmm. And certain heresies just don't work. And you can understand why this group or this individual tried it out or misunderstood some things or maybe was very sincere about some things. Um, but I would say if someone is drawn toward any one of these particular heretics, and I, I mean, I, certainly with the later chapters when you get to Christian groups that are still around today, I found that temptation myself. It, as I said, it gets complicated when you talk about contemporary dialogue between those groups and other Christian groups. So I'm all for intellectual curiosity and exploring these things. I would just say don't uh, put the cart before the horse. Hmm. Your your individual opinions are much less important. Or at least you have a right to your individual opinions, but surely you want to hear what the whole tradition of Christianity has had to say on these issues, not just one teacher or one individual on these issues. Hmm. I think that's great. Uh, one second, though. This is the last question, actually. Uh, what advice would you give to, to pastors uh, to address, you know, heresies that they might hear a member of their church mm-hmm. uh, kind of articulating? Yeah, great question. I've served in. Uh, I am an ordained minister. I've served in a few churches. Um, I've actually been in a church where we had an outright Arian, a subordinationist <laughs> who believed Jesus was uh, created by God, not equal to God the Father, um, before all time, and then all the good things about Jesus that come after. He believed all of that, but Jesus is less than God, less than God the Father. Um, I was on the pastoral staff at the time, and um, this was brought to my attention because this man was a Sunday school teacher and that fell under my job responsibility and so I met with him a couple of times tried to be very patient and gentle with him and say this this is heresy <laughs> I didn't call it that um, I didn't tell him he was an Arian but uh, he he insisted this was how he reads the Bible and after all I'm, I'm Baptist we uh, have freedom of conscience and the individual can choose to read the Bible the way he or she wants to so I said, but you're a Sunday school teacher, and you have a responsibility to the larger class and to the larger church. I think we need to go talk to the pastor. And eventually this resulted in him having the decision to either teach what the church believes or not teach. Yeah. So, I, again, I go back to that individualism that's, I think, the more, tr- more difficult problem. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that I have simple advice. I, yeah. I think um, maybe at least warnings. You don't – I, I kind of thought about – think about this question as having two extreme reactions, right? The church I've mentioned has had uh, the Inquisition set up. Yeah. Uh, I don't think 
pastors are called to be the grand inquisitor and to be heresy hunters. Um, in fact, we have all probably all know examples where there's been serious abuse from pastors who kind of had that mentality, or even churches that had that mentality. So we're not out to... to uh, my first advice is don't try to oust all the heretics from our churches and from our pews. Um, as, as Paul even said, there must yeah. be heretics and heresies among you. Um, and then on the other side of that is there are a lot of pastors who are just people pleasers. Hmm. Uh, and it's just, uh, frankly, it's too easy to be a coward and not confront people. So I think the good news is that in, in my study of these early Christological heresies, no one person is ever given the authority to excommunicate. Hmm. Now, it's a little bit trickier. Bishops, when they come on the scene with the hierarchy of bishops, bishops can excommunicate priests and others that are directly under them. But even then, before someone is declared a heretic and ousted, you know, apostate because because of that, anathema, um, this goes to a council, and preferably an ecumenical council. So um, dealing with heresy is a real ongoing problem. But I don't think any one person is called to be the Lone Ranger to deal with it alone. I think we um, use those other church structures that are in place to, to help us with these things. And so hopefully we do so in love and in truth. Great. Thank you. So that's going to do it for uh, today's podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Wilhite. Thank you. Uh, you honored us with your wisdom today. And uh, so I know it's just our inaugural guest. The maiden voyage. Yeah. I'm honored. So we, uh, this is great. This is just a little uh, shameless plug for Dr. Wilhite's book, Christmas is Coming, and there is no better gift for your heretical spouse, loved one, or child than the gospel according to heretics. That one for all your friends and family. Thank you all for listening. Have a great day.